We're coming to the end of our series in Daniel. You know there's actually, uh, it goes up to chapter 12. So we're cutting it off premature, and um, there's, there is a number of reasons for that. Um, it'll, it'll start to become clear as we dig into this passage. The le- second part of the book of Daniel is, um, is, is all, it all gets a bit crazy. And uh, it's not that it's not important to look at that stuff, understand that stuff, and take it on board, but um, I think it's, it's a little bit beyond my gifts as a preacher. So I'm, um, I'm wanting us to stay, sit here in Daniel 7 and bring it to a close here. Um, the beginning of the kind of prophetic section of the book. And actually, much of what follows in the chapters to come is in, sort of encapsulated in the passage we're going to be looking at today. So um, to some extent, we're going to get sort of the, the sweetness, the richness of that stuff that's later going to happen in the book, but all condensed here. Um, and it ends on just a, such a wonderful note, the section we're looking at. So we're going to go from the beginning of Daniel 7 over the page to the end in verse 14. <clears throat> End of that page, I mean. And uh, I'm going to not read it all at once. We're going to read it in three sections and work through each section this morning and just unpack something of its significance for us. And it begins with what you could think of as a kind of the backdrop for what God is going to reveal about himself and indeed about his son. So we'll pick it up from verse 1 and let me just quickly pray as we do this. Father... We believe that the right stance and posture when we open your word is one of a reverence and a holy fear. And perhaps never more so than when we encounter passages like this one, which touch on deep suffering and profound hope. And I pray, Lord God, that you would allow there to be, Lord, a sense of identification and a resonance in every heart here, that you are speaking you are injecting new levels of faith and hope of what we understand your purposes to be in the world. Come and minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read from verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, so if you know the story so far, we've jumped back in time a little bit. We're cutting in um, earlier on. The first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. This first section is kind of setting a backdrop for us of the terrible world we live in. And probably as you're reading this, you're thinking, well, this book is getting a little bit weird now. And you're right, it is. It really is. Um, As I said, the first six chapters of Daniel tell the story, you know, Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It's the kind of stuff that belongs on Sunday school felt boards when you're a kid. The the wonderful kind of exciting narratives. And suddenly, we've tipped into something really different when we get into chapter 7 onwards. And actually, just so you understand, what's being described here is just history. Future history, 
prophecy, stuff that hadn't yet happened but would, which in itself is an incredible thing because these prophecies are so descriptive and accurate of what was yet to come. But it's history nonetheless, so we can sort of begin to get, this isn't about weird things. It's the same in the New Testament when Jesus talks about the moon turning to blood and the Son of Man coming on the clouds and so on. We're not meant to understand this literally. It's a type of literature. It's a way of describing history in, in kind of pictures and symbols. So just very briefly for the theology nerds here, what we're talking about are four empires that would arise. It begins with, um, with Babylon, where Daniel's living, the emperor, and it being Belshazzar before him, Nebuchadnezzar. And so we got this lion, a lion who has his eagles ripped off, no doubt, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, the way he's humbled, if you were with us earlier in the story. And then he's given the mind of a man, he's reinstated. Then you come to a bear, a bear that's kind of like a Quasimodo bear. It's like lopsided and leaning over with one side stronger than the other. And it's talking about the Medo-Persian empire that was yet to come and how the Medes would actually be stronger than the Persians and they're just you know, destruction in their wake, this bear with the ribs in its teeth, hungry from the kill and still ravenous. And then you get this third one, a leopard with the wings, four wings on its back, which speaks of its speed. It's about Alexander the Great and his Greek empire, and it's got four heads, this leopard. So it's kind of a trippy picture, but this thing represents the, the four um, generals who took over Alexander's empire. He died at 32, having conquered the entire world, and then his kingdom went to four men, and it was divided, the four heads of the leopard. And then finally, this beast, uh, extremely frightening image. It only, it doesn't even, it's not even an animal. He can't even describe it as an animal. It's just this terrifying thing with iron teeth and stamping on everything and killing everything. And it represents Rome. Ten horns speak of the ten main emperors between Julius Caesar and Domitian, just counting a couple who dis- disappeared very quickly early on in the reigns. And the, this fourth one, Antiochus Epiphanes, who knocks down the three before, and he's got this mouth that's speaking, this horn that's talking. And it's talking about what, if you know your New Testament, the, um, the abomination of desolation. And so, yeah, language that's kind of full of strange symbols and ideas, actually just rooted in events that were going to come. So we just need to kind of demythologize it a little bit as we begin. But it's called apocalyptic. If you've read the book of Revelation, then you probably found yourself with your head spinning. It's actually just the same kind of stuff going on there. They're prophecies about what was to come for God's people to say to them that God has it in hand and that he knows the end from the beginning and he's with his people. But he uses all these pictures and symbols that kind of strike terror into the heart of the reader so that they can understand something of the fear of what will come, the dread of what will come. And so the big question that I want to wrestle with just as we get into this first section is why? Why does God talk like this and why does he start telling Daniel all this stuff about what was yet to come? And I think the answer really comes down to this, that bad stuff was going to happen. Really, really bad stuff. And it's very hard for us to fully identify because we're so separated by centuries and also by miles from what had taken place. But for hundreds of years, God's people were going to be a subject people under these successive empires. Now, just enter into a thought experiment with me. It's like as though in 1943 or 44, someone had said to a prophet that Hitler is going to win this war. And, you know, if he'd done so, the terror that would have filled the prophet's heart, knowing the destruction and death and sorrow that would come in the wake of such an evil empire. And then after him will come the French, and they'll be even worse. And then after them, the Dutch, and they'll be even worse. And then after them, the Welsh, and they're going to make everyone speak Welsh, and we're all going to hate them. And, you know, this, sorry, sorry, guys. Um, Brandon's at the back there. So... You've got to understand, like, for, for, the, for, for Daniel and for people who read what he'd written down, they were saying, this is really going to be bad, and it's going to be bad for centuries. And God has a reason in telling people that. We also live in incredibly dark times. Just thinking back over relatively recent history, the century that's just gone before us, I was reading some little notes about what's happened in this last century. We know about the well-known stuff, the Holocaust. Just, just, oh, 
just makes your stomach churn every time you think about it. We visited a concentration camp a few years ago, and we were absolutely, you know, you just, you just stand there in utter dismay. How can man do this? This writer, Dale Ralph Davis, talks about some of the other things that have happened just in this last century. He talks about how at the end of the 1800s, the, the Turkish government had killed about 100,000 Armenians. And then because they thought the Armenians were sort of assisting Russians, in 1915 they killed 600,000 in one day. They did things like crushing, squeezing their heads in vices. When the Koreans apparently protested Japanese tyranny in, in 1919, men and boys had their fingers passed over red-hot wires and their toenails ripped out with pincers. They were flogged and gangrenous skin had to be taken off their bodies in hospital. In World War II, there was a day called Black Friday when Japanese troops went through a hospital in Singapore bayoneting patients and doctors and nurses and killing them in cold blood, just ruthlessly massacring people. In 1932, Joseph Stalin, he demanded more grain from the Ukraine than the whole of the Ukraine produced. And as a result, it's estimated that something like six or seven million Ukrainians starved to death. In the 1970s, Idi Amin from Uganda, he would sledgehammer his prisoners and the execution cells, it says, were littered with human eyes and teeth. And if they were belonged to the wrong tribe, their sex organs would be ripped off. We live at a time when just last week uh, in Pakistan, there was a bomb that was intended to kill lots of Christians. One of the sort of untold stories of this last decade has been the death of Christians all around the world. It's estimated that something like 100,000 Christians have been killed for their faith in this last decade. 100,000 Christians. And you don't really hear about it very often, do you? One commentator said this. The plight of an entire new generation of Christian martyrs may be the greatest story never told never told of the early 21st century. It's baffling, isn't it? How can we live in such dark times? And then we think about what we see on the news constantly, the, the turmoil in the recent years of the Middle East, how it's just upside down and it's no nearer being settled. We think about how the superpowers are standing off one against another right now. You know, Russia's sort of wanting to almost restart the Cold War, it seems, and America's sort of posturing as well, and you think, where are we going? And then we hear in the news about things like the terrorists have these plans apparently to drop dirty nuclear bombs over cities using drones. Very hard to stop that kind of thing, and it makes you a little bit afraid, doesn't it? And if the drones and the bombs don't get you, then maybe, maybe the uh, MRSA will get you. Because, you know, we live at a time when antibiotics are becoming ineffective and one little scratch might actually cause septicemia and you'll be dead within a few days. And if that doesn't get you, the scientists tell us that an asteroid's probably going to wipe out the planet. So things are just getting from bad to worse. We're going to drown for global warming or we're going to run out of food or whatever it is, we live in dark times. And I only say all that because I think that it, it kind of begins to chime with our hearts about the terror that... Daniel and his contemporaries must have felt thinking about these empires. These empires were ruthless, bloody empires and for centuries would kill God's people. And then we come back to our question, why, why is God saying all this? And I think the answer comes down to this, that there is a particular danger in suffering. There's a danger that suffering can derail the faith of believers. You know it at the personal level, we can know it also at the grand level of nations. Many people have turned their back on God because of the world wars. Many Jewish people have become atheists because of what happened. They think God abandoned them and therefore he cannot exist. But you also know it at your own experience. You know, I don't want to trivialize this, but you know, I've met many people whose faith can be derailed because of a reason as simple as the fact that they're not married. They think God can't be good if he hasn't given me a spouse or because their careers hit a wall and, or maybe they're unemployed or they lose a child. Something happens and 
when suffering and bad stuff happens to you, your, your faith can be knocked sideways and you begin to doubt everything you've ever said about God. I think that's why God tells Daniel this stuff in advance, beforehand. In some ways, it's just better to know what's coming. Another thought experiment. Imagine if I had a room out the back here, and I could take you back one by one and take a a little droplet of your blood, put it in a machine, and that machine would tell us to within a year when you were going to die. Would you take the test? Now, in one sense, you might think that would be quite crushing and deflating, especially if it's very soon. In another sense, it's quite liberating to know, okay, I've got this much time, what should I do with it? And to be forewarned is forearmed. So at one level, I think God is just giving us knowledge ahead of time. That's what God was doing for Daniel. But knowledge in itself is not enough, is it? Because knowledge like this, knowledge that things are going to get ugly, knowledge that things are going to be hard and suffering is going to be intense, can lead you to despair if that knowledge is not also paired with deep theology about what God is doing in this situation. Just consider the alternatives. If you don't have the kind of ballast, the substance in terms of your understanding of who God is, what happens to your faith when you suffer? Well, let's start and think about firstly those who have no knowledge of God at all. If you're an atheist or an agnostic and you don't know God in in the slightest, then what is suffering? Suffering is just random events that happen to you. Meaningless events. Futile events. To go through life without any assurance that anyone is in control outside of the forces of nature and humanity is one of the most terrifying things I think you can ever face up to, which I, I believe is the reason so many people bury their heads in entertainment or in drug-taking, or in sex and pleasure-seeking, because reality is too scary to confront. But it's not just if you're not a Christian or not a believer. It's also true for people who are maybe from sort of nominal or traditional backgrounds where your faith has just been what your parents have sort of taken you to church and you've just gone through the motions, but you don't really know God. What happens to you when you suffer? There's no way you can experience hope, joy, Whereas the New Testament talks of rejoicing in suffering because the God, God is so distant from you, 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 you cannot possibly experience him on that level. Suffering, suffering is just cold, hard reality. And it's true also for people whose, whose whole faith has been superficial in the sense that it's all been based on emotion. I think a lot of people go to church in London because they enjoy the uplifting sensation, the kind of... Um, the rallying sermons that you get in, in many places or the kind of music that's sort of exciting and makes you feel better about yourself and you feel like, wow, I love Jesus and I love feeling great about life and he's, all on, every, he's on my side and everything's going to go well. What happens to you when you suffer is that suddenly your whole perception of what Jesus is like and his plans begins to be altered and your faith is killed. Jesus talked about this in the parable of the sower. He said that some of the seed grows up quickly out of joy. And then as soon as suffering or temptation hits, like the sun beating down on it, it withers and dies. Because it doesn't have any root. Christians who don't know that suffering is going to come. And don't know what God is up to in it. Are Christians without roots. Their faith withers and dies. Which is why it's important not only for us to know that God allows bad things, but also for us to understand a theology of what God is up to in it. I had the enormous privilege of being at a celebration service on Friday night, for the, which was in relation to the death of a baby, Judah. He was term, he was ready to be born, and as his mum Laura went into labor, Judah died in the womb and was delivered by C-section. They attempted to resuscitate him for a full hour without success. And Pete and Laura were telling the story to a room full of people, friends and family. And it was extraordinary, the strength and resolve and even joy they had in God amidst a time, in a time of profound sorrow and mourning. And whatever faith Pete and Laura have had in the past... The thing I said to them when I I spoke to them afterwards was that you just see the depth of their faith now. 
You know, Peter talks about suffering and going through fire that our faith may be tested and proved to be of more worth than precious jewels. When you experience as you will, profound difficulties in life, that is when we get to see what kind of faith you have. In particular, we get down to specifics. What is it that God wants us to know about himself? And it's going to come out a little bit more, of course, as we read on. But I think it comes down to a combination of three things. That he's in control. He's telling Daniel this stuff ahead of time for him to know, I'm in control. That he has a plan and that the plan is good. To say he's in control means to say that he's at the drive, at the, in the driving seat at the steering wheel. If God isn't at the steering wheel, who is? It's a terrifying thought. But to say that God is at the steering wheel is to say that when bad stuff happens, he does allow it to happen. It's not against his will in, in, in one sense. And I take comfort from knowing he is actually in control. But it's not enough just to know he's in control. You also know, have to know the second thing, that he has a plan. Just like saying that he's also got a map. He's driving, but he has a map. He knows where, it's, where we're going. And then, of course, it's not enough just to say those two things because you know, with a map, you could be going to Birmingham, of all places. You could be going somewhere you don't necessarily want to go. So it's not just that he has a, he's in control. It's not just that he has a plan and he has a map. It's that he's taking us somewhere good. If only we'll believe, if only we'll trust. And it's the combination of those three facts that gives you strength and backbone in the face of difficult times. And that is why God is talking to Daniel, because millions, potentially, certainly hundreds of thousands of Jewish people would read this in the intervening centuries and know God is still with us. It doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it. But he is still with us. When you have that knowledge... You become like Daniel himself, a man of deep resolve, conviction, passion, love for God, even in the midst of dark, dark situations. I want us to read on. I'm going to pick up again from verse 9. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. And his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Here, it's as though, while God's been telling Daniel the history books ahead of time, suddenly the curtains are opened and Daniel gets an insight into what's happening in heavenly places. Now, this is incredibly important for us in ordinary day-to-day life because what we're talking about here is how we can approach life with what we can describe as the eyes of faith. A couple of stories in the Bible to illustrate what I'm talking about. Faith is essentially recasting reality in light of what God says is going on. Trusting his word about everything. There's an amazing story in 2 Kings 6 where um, Elisha, is uh, basically what's happening is Israel's at war with Syria, and Elisha, a prophet, knows what's happening in the Syrian war cabinet in the rooms as they plan their battle strategy because he's hearing stuff from God about it. And then he just relays it to, to the Israelite kings, and then fine, they, they, they escape or they win in battle. And the Syrians are, are raging. They're thinking there must be a spy, someone's informing, and then they hear, no, it's that they've got this prophet Elisha. So what they do is they go to get, get him. And they go to a city called Dothan, where, where Elisha's hanging out with his servant. And they surround the city with many, many thousands of troops. And the servant freaks out. He says, alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha replies in this, such an intriguing way. He says, do not be afraid, 
for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant's thinking, actually, this city's pretty small. There's not many people with us. They're going to beat us. And then Elisha prays. He says, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And it says, the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In other words, there were armies of the living God all around the city. It's just that you can't see them with your ordinary eyes. So when you look at reality as it feels, as it impacts you straight away through your senses, your eyes, your smell, your touch, it looks bad. And then when God opens your eyes to see from God's perspective, things look incredibly different. It's the same thing that we saw going on in Daniel 3 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace. It looks like a pretty bad situation for them. They're about to be burned alive. But it says suddenly a man appeared, a fourth man appeared with them in the fire. Now, I don't think that the man wasn't there beforehand. It's just that no one saw him. And it's sort of a pre-appearance of Jesus there to save them from the fire. Faith is essentially then being able to look at reality as God describes and defines reality, not as your eyes do. Taking him at his word is what he says about life true or not. Now this is really important because when we're looking at the book of Daniel, we're seeing a man who consistently impresses us with how godly and consistent he is. Such that, you know, Wednesday night at our life group, we were talking about this and just commenting how, you know, it's very hard to take inspiration from this guy because he's almost too perfect. At least with some other characters in the Bible, you feel a sense of identification because, you know, they're flawed like us. They make mistakes. Daniel, when we read the book, we don't really seem to learn about his mistakes. We just learn about his faithfulness and his no compromise attitude and his purity and everything. And then you think, well, how on earth am I meant to attain to being anything like him? And and why was he like that? And I think the answer is very simple. Daniel is a man of faith to say he actually believed what God said. He just took it as true. And that utterly changed his whole perspective on his situation, which to any other man would look like just the worst situation in the world to be in, serving a foreign emperor. This is profoundly encouraging. Because it means that Daniel didn't have superpowers. He wasn't invulnerable to temptation. He wasn't invulnerable to despair. He, just like you and I, found himself in a situation that tempted him to just totally throw in the towel, to to sin and to, to, to compromise. And the only thing that made the difference for him was his faith, his belief that God speaks the truth. And I take encouragement from that because it says to me, I don't need to be a superman to live a godly life. I, I just need to do what Daniel does and believe when God speaks, he's speaking the truth. And that God gets to define reality. Now, this is something that can affect you in just ordinary day-to-day life. For example... If you struggle with anxieties on a day-to-day basis, as so many of us do, how much of anxiety is... Well, I heard it put this week that anxiety is when we start praying to ourselves instead of praying to Jesus. You know, we start planning and churning and thinking about how we're going to solve situations and we realize we can't, we feel overwhelmed. Anxieties melt away the more that we take Jesus' word as true. So when he says... He cares for us. That not only impacts us intellectually, it begins to sink into our heart. We actually believe it's true. That's the kind of thing that Daniel did. He accepted what God said was true, and it reshaped how he felt about his situation. If you're a person who struggles with condemnation on a day-to-day basis and a feeling of guilt and shame, you're beating yourself up constantly about the wrongs you've done, To accept what God says about you is to say that he's a loving father and that there is therefore no condemnation, the Bible says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can, in the words of Taylor Swift, shake it off. (laughs) It is Taylor Swift, right? Just to check my reference there. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I should have said Beyonce or something stupid. Um, 
If you're a person who suffers with guilt and shame, can you accept that what God says about you is true? You know, and that's just the sort of negative stuff. What about proactively? When you think about the resources God has given you, your money, how are you going to use it? Now, I, I believe that a person who lives under a confident sense that God has spoken about his intention to take care of us and, and to bless us even more as we're generous, the degree to which you believe that's true will be reflected in how generous you are, won't it? So you see how faith begins to shape what you do and how you feel in day to day. Daniel didn't have some secret about why he was such a godly man. It was just very simple. God spoke, he believed. And he didn't allow his faith to waver. What does he see? Let's briefly just unpack the actual vision. Just because every line, I'm not going to talk about every line, but every little image here is significant. First, thrones were placed. Why thrones? Why not one throne? I think it becomes obvious when you realize that God is plurality. He's Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Maybe not so obvious to Daniel because he didn't know about the Son at the time. (laughs) Thrones were placed. It says the Ancient of Days took his seat. Why is he called the Ancient of Days? To my knowledge, it's the only place in Scripture where this title is given. And it just basically means the very old one took his seat. Well, it's just to say that just as emperors rise and fall, God was there before them and he'll be there long after them. You know, a name like Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't really mean anything to you, does it? Even if at the time he was the symbol of everything that hates God. And that comforts me because it says, whoever the worst people in the world are right now, Donald Trump. Let's say Donald Trump. (laughs) The Ancient of Days is still in his seat. It doesn't matter in one sense. The fact that it says he took his seat, it's like he's readying himself for action. I've been in a court of law and a jury bench. I'm actually going to be in one in about a week's time. And when the judge comes in, everyone's quiet. And even as he takes his seat, there's a sense of anticipation because he's in charge in that courtroom doesn't matter how important you think you are. You can be the queen. If you're on that jury bench, the judge is in charge. We sit under the law. The same is going on here. It doesn't matter how wicked rulers are and how bad the things get on earth. When God takes his seat, he's in charge. It talks about him being dressed in white and having a head that's like pure wool. I think the older I get, the more sickened I get by politics. By all the twistedness and corruption. By all the spin. And I'm not saying that politics isn't a place for a Christian. But I'm saying that we should have a healthy dose of realism. Mixed with godly submission. But when we look at God, we see one who is totally pure. Dressed in white. He's just and he will do no wrong. And it says that fire issued, came out, it's like flowing out from his throne. Why? Because he's purifying the world. He's burning up all the bad stuff. And then my favorite line, the books were opened. The reason why I think that's such a comforting and profound and powerful line is because it's saying it doesn't matter how bad things get, God will deal with it because he is taking note of everything. Nothing passes his notice. His scribes are busy at work recording everything. So when a guy walks into a school and shoots or lets off a bomb, or when a brutal ruler uses toxic gases to gas his own people, whatever is going on in the world, God is taking note. And one day the books are going to be They're going to be open. They're going to be laid out. That's terrifying, of course, if you're on the wrong side of God. It's terrifying if you're his enemy. And if you have not learned how you can become his friend. And how your record can be expunged and wiped away. Which is the gospel, the message of the New Testament. If that isn't true of you, then friends, everything 
that you've done that weighs on your conscience, that makes you feel guilty, is in those books. It doesn't matter if you're not Idi Amin or Stalin or whatever. We've all done wrong. We'll all be held to account. To be a Christian is to know that when the books are opened, it's as though some kind of eraser, perhaps in red ink, the blood of Christ has just been washed over those pages and everything you've done wrong has been wiped away, made illegible, forgotten for all time. How precious to know that we can sit on the right side of the judge, not the wrong side. Daniel hears this stuff. And he has just a brief dilemma that he's got to face in his mind or maybe an ongoing one for the years of his life. And it's just simply this. Will he accept, as I've been saying, the situation as it appears around him, bad men coming to power and worse to come? Or will he accept that what this vision depicts is true and real and it's not just him having a weird dream after eating too much cheese? It really does come down to that. Is what God is saying true or not? And just in case you think, well, that was easier for Daniel because he actually had the vision. I think actually for us sitting here in 2016, reading this in a book, we actually have a more privileged position than Daniel and less excuse for faithlessness because of this simple reason. Everything he wrote came true. You can know with absolute certainty that God is in control to a degree and extent that Daniel had to take by faith because everything he predicted is now in the history books. Friends, we have more solid ground to trust God than ever. We read this book and we marvel at the hand of God weaving a story together that we know he'll bring to a profoundly comforting an exciting conclusion. Let's read the last section. I saw in the night visions, verse 13, and behold, of the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I think this is the perfect point for us to leave the book of Daniel because it's ending where we really want it to end for us and our perspective on these events which is to say that things get better. If we'd stopped at verse 12, then all we've read about is judgment and destruction. And you know what happens when you just destroy? You leave vacuums. We've seen it in the Middle East, that as wicked dictators have been toppled over, all that's happened is more blood should come about as a result, because in a vacuum, evil just flourishes and grows, and no one's there to even stem uh, the evil that was even using evil means. And so God doesn't just leave it in a situation where he just judges the bad stuff and then lets the world rot. Instead, he starts rebuilding something. And then you ask, well, what is it that the world really needs? And the answer is very, very clear for us, isn't it? The world needs a just, a righteous, a loving, good servant leader. It needs Jesus. And friends, this is one of the most powerful descriptions of Jesus that we get in the whole of the Old Testament and of his prophecies of what he would come to do. This is about our Savior and his plan and purpose in the world, the one which we are aligned to if we know him and love him and are part of his church. And I want to tell you, because I kind of jumped to the end and told you what it's about before we've even looked at it, we just need to understand that from Daniel's perspective, three things are true. That this is written in the 500s, the long 500s BC, long before Jesus was even born. 
that secondly, Daniel may have known of the Davidic promises, the promises that God gave to King David about a descendant of his being on the throne forever. But those promises were dead in the water because they were a conquered people. There was no king effectively. Not a, a real king, just puppet kings. And third, that even if Daniel harbored in his heart a kind of messianic expectation that God is going to be good, true to his word and raise up a savior, a Christ, a Messiah who would save his people. Nobody at the time expected that Messiah to be divine. So the reason I say that to you is because now it, it looks obvious to us what this is about. But actually, these verses only make sense for us on the other side of Jesus and the cross. And that's true for, for three more reasons. The first is this, because suddenly we realize on the other side of Jesus that the Messiah was going to be divine and that it was in here all along, just no one realized. I say it because it's got language like this. It talks about this man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, that's language that's used about 70 times in the Old Testament, always about God. And here, it's used about this man like a son of man. Alarm bells should have been ringing for Daniel and his readers. This Messiah, maybe he's a little bit more than we ever thought he would be. For us now, on the other side of Christ's coming and his cross and his resurrection and his enthronement to the right hand of God, we now know, ah, he's the son of God. He's not just a man. And that makes so much more sense of the rest of what it says here. Here's a second thing that only makes sense from this side. That at the time, so much of the expectation around the Messiah coming was that he would just help Israel and save Israel and rule Israel. And that it would be a local king letting them live in a kind of earthly paradise. But what does he say here? It says all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. And then suddenly, you go to your Gospels and you read about how Jesus had no intention to deliver his people Israel from the Romans because he actually had a much, much bigger plan. He had a plan to conquer the entire world that all peoples, nations, languages would come to know him. It's the Great Commission people. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Nobody got this stuff until Jesus cracked it open and we suddenly realized he doesn't have a parochial vision just for Israel. He's got a worldwide ambition through his church to save the entirety of the world. And to bring every knee into submission to him as Lord. And here's a third thing that only makes sense from the perspective of knowing what happened when Jesus came in history. And it's this. That the timing was so utterly perfect. Here's Daniel writing in the 500s BC. Talking about a series of four successive empires. And how sometime in the fourth empire this new one would arise. The one that belongs to the son of man. And then it all clicks into place. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom. When you really meditate on this, it takes your breath away. What looks like obscure, bizarre imagery, suddenly, when a light is shone upon it, and you see Jesus in, this, in these pages... It takes your breath away to know that God had it all in hand. And I think this is so important for us seated here today because we may be tempted to some degree of fear and even cynicism about what's going on in our own lives and in the world around us. We see the church in the West just being decimated by liberalism and by and, and so many church buildings being empty and we see secularism constantly on the rise and its influence pervading the whole world through Western media. You know, when you think about your own sort of day-to-day life, how much of your life is, is shaped by the certainty that Jesus is coming again. I think for many of us, the second coming is a kind of a distant event in the backs of our minds. We don't live as though, as Christ put it, with that readiness, he could come at any moment like a thief in the night. And it shows you how much our 
our world is shaped by just the gritty realities of day-to-day life rather than by reality as God describes it. But when we read passages like this, suddenly it's like the dots are connected and we start to see the thread of history. That God had a plan here in the 500s BC that he'd begun much earlier, before the creation of the world, and that the thread has a consistency to it. It runs through the four empires. It arrives at the point of Jesus and that everything Jesus therefore has said about his future intentions in this world will come true because, friends, this is an unbroken thread in history. God's ambition, God's plan, God's control. This means that whatever your concerns are today, you can rest in this reality. Christians should not go through life afraid. We shouldn't go through life afraid of all the things we've been talking about, the wickedness that's around us in this world and the uncertainty of what the future holds. And that ought also to be true for you at a very personal level. You may wrestle day to day with a sense of what your calling is and drawn to desires that you know conflict with the kingdom. And always it's that, that toss-up. Do I, do I indulge myself? Do I pursue the things I want to pursue and take the risks of, 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 uh, of turning my back on what Christ wants for me? Or do I turn my back on that stuff and risk missing out in this world because I think that what Jesus says about life is real and true and that he's actually about a greater plan. This is the struggle of the Christian life. The walk. This is what it means to live by faith. There's always that battle between reality as you see it, which demands that all your agenda, all your ambitions in life be shaped by what the world tells you is important. Popularity, success, money, owning a home, having the perfect looking spouse, all the rest of it. It's the battle between that and then what Christ says to you. That he calls you to come and die. That he calls you to be his disciple. He calls you to take up your cross and follow him. He calls you to slay sin in your life. He calls you to be radical in your generosity, radical in your commitment. He calls you to lay down your popularity and your success even for the sake of the gospel that you might make him known in the world. He calls you to be a disciple. And your day-by-day decisions, as well as the great trajectory of where your life is going, is always a reflection of which reality is winning. Is it the reality of this world and my need to try and control my circumstances as best as I can? Or is it the reality that God says about his son and his son's purposes in the world? Friend, whatever it is that you are wrestling with right now, that is the nut of it. And a passage like this exists because it's meant to reinstill confidence in us. That if God has been trustworthy in the past, he will be trustworthy in the future. So why not lay down your life for him? I want to close with just two thoughts. If you are not a Christian, what's being described here? A judge and a ruler with dominion that will last forever is a kind of an invitation, but it's also a demand because it's describing something that you cannot escape from. Jesus is real and he is is reigning on his throne and he's bringing all history to the conclusion he wants it to end at. And you're either on the right or the wrong side of him. The passage I opened at the very beginning of the service talks about God's intention through giving Jesus the name that is above every name that every knee should bow. And that is your knees. Have your knees bowed to Jesus? It's the most important question you can ever ask. If you are a Christian, if you know Jesus, I just want to encourage you. Whatever it is you're wrestling through, let your present be reshaped by these truths. Let your decisions be reshaped by the reality that God describes of Jesus being king. And let your surrender and your discipleship to, be, to him be absolute. Without mixture, without hesitation, complete. Even as we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, it is incredible, comforting, exciting, and profoundly uplifting to know that even in the darkest times of life, you're working your plan. And Lord, if all of this began to come true when Jesus came to earth, that everything that Daniel said was vindicated, then Lord, I don't want any of us to walk out of this room without looking at the world differently, our lives differently, our place in this world differently. I confess, Lord, that we belong to you and that it's up to you how you deal, deal with us. Whatever sufferings you allot for us, whatever joys and victories you have allowed us, we want to take it all believing that you are good, believing that you are in control and that you have a plan. And so we come and surrender. Thank you for Daniel. Thank you for the incredible example he is, but thank you even more for Jesus. Thank you that everything we hope for in life can find its fulfillment in him. Our desire for joy, for love, for fulfillment, for significance. Our desire to be part of something big, something lasting, something good. All of it finds a focus in that man, the son of man. You know the battles that rage in our hearts. You know the fears that control our decisions. Lord Jesus, we need a fresh vision of you. We need to believe that what you say is actually true. We need to see reality as you describe and define and rule it. Not as our circumstances tell us. And we need to make decisions that honor that. I thank you, Lord, that the most important reality of all was that you died and that you rose again. The reality that made the difference between us being your enemies and being your friends. So as we take communion now, we want to offer ourselves afresh Receive your grace and be changed by your power. In Jesus' name, amen.